Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show. Um, you're on 3CR Community Radio, uh, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Uh, thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show about rooming houses and homelessness. Uh, my name's Bill, and for the next hour, my guests will be sharing their journey of recovery from active alcoholism. Uh, I'd like to welcome Dave and Kat to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi, guys. Hi, Bill. How are hey, you? Hey, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Um, so, as members of Alcoholics Anonymous, they're going to be sharing their uh, recovery experience with us um, and how Alcoholics Anonymous has helped them. So we usually start talking about what it was like in our childhood, what, what sort of family life was like, and how we sort of came in contact with drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. So Dave, what, how, how did you start out? Well, I basically grew up in a very uh, typical Australian household. Um, Dad was white shirt manager of a company. Um, mum was a stay-at-home mum, so this was the 70s and the 80s, and... Um, Alcohol was a part of our family. Um, so if you had a cold or flu, you had rum mixed with lemon and boiling water. Uh, if a baby was crying, the dummy was put in brandy and uh, you were encouraged to have a sip of beer at Dad's table as you grew up. So alcohol was very normal. Uh, as a child, though, uh, I felt very disassociated with people. Um, one of my earliest memories at primary school is standing on the field and uh, I have this vague memory of someone next to me on the grass and I'm looking back at the buildings of the school and going, what is this about and why am I here? Um, I had no interest in authority. I had no interest in the teachers. I saw, I actually saw the teachers and that as equals, even in primary school. Um, I actually saw myself as a grown-up, even when I was eight and nine but I felt like I didn't belong. So the old thing of I thought I was adopted, uh, I've changed that. I was waiting for the mothership to come and take me back to my planet. Right, yeah. <laughs> so that's, even at home, once my sister left at 16, she left it when she was 16, and it's been brought to my attention. Someone said, well, why do you think she left it when she was 16? So I was eight, and that left me, mum and dad, and they both drank quite heavily, so basically you can imagine the lounge room, neighbours is on the television, three of us are running the household but nobody's talking. Yeah. So there was actually no one running the household. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, by 14 um, I was out the door and into the wilderness. Yeah. So, yeah. so what, what were your friends doing? Did they have similar sort of families? Yeah, very similar. I grew up in Mount Waverley yeah. and it was just um, that's how it was. Um, of course, I don't know what their families was like because I lived in neighbours' country being Mount Waverley, and so you didn't know what happened inside people's homes. You know, you only saw the the picket fence and, you know, the the 2.1 children, the dog and all that. Um, And I guess people probably thought the same about my home. The the garden was immaculate. Dad mowed the lawns on a Sunday. You know, everything looked normal. Externally, it looked great. Looked great, yeah, yeah. 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 And so I grew up with um, at Mount Waverley at the high school and... um, I had a, great, a heap of friends. Um, my, I, I felt more connected to those friends when I, after I drank in when I was in probably year eight. 
Uh, that's what I actually became human and, and gained a group of friends. Before, yeah. before alcohol, I was always on the edges. Okay. So I was a watcher. Yeah. yeah. But you thought you were pretty much in control. Yeah, I thought I was special. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Strange that, isn't it? So how did your, the rest of your teens go then? So having these group – so basically what happened was uh, someone had a, a 13 or a 14-year-old party. Um, that night I got drunk off alcohol that I bought. So that's what I consider my first drink, even though I've always, always had alcohol in my system. <clears throat> that was my first drink. We bought half a dozen cans. I think two got spilt and I drank four. You know, it was pretty, yeah. out, pretty <laughs> wild, out of control. But that night I gained a huge, huge crew of friends and a girlfriend. Right. Yeah. So um, – You'd made it. I'd arrived. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Every, everything life was going to life was going to be fine. Yeah. And so what happened for the rest of school was slowly, I guess what you would call in in the druggy world the straighter people. So those with ambition, <laughs> uh, they were the first to fall off the radar. So yeah. obviously they were the first ones to say, "We're not hanging around with this guy," um, you know. And I wasn't invited to their homes anymore. And slowly and steadily, each member would drop off. I mean, they would stay friends, but I would cease chatting or talking or being invited. Now, I didn't know that. I just thought I was so cool that they couldn't keep up with me. Yeah. You know, but in reality, what it was, was they were living decent, normal lives. Their parents were saying, please don't hang with him, don't bring him here, all those sort of things. They needed to do their homework. I wasn't doing homework. So as it got, you know, into year 11 and year 12, of course, these kids are busy. Yeah, you know they got girlfriends, they got lives, they yeah. got lives, yeah. and I've got nothing. Um, and I thought I was the one that was doing well, and they were all losers. Yeah. So, but I didn't know then what I know now, and that was that I was drinking because of the the phenomenon of craving. Yeah. So once I stopped, I couldn't. Yeah. Once I started, I couldn't stop couldn't drinking. Stop. At the time, I just thought I was really pretty cool. I could drink a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm just I'm just so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Kat, what about you? How did your life start and how, how did you get exposed to alcohol? So alcohol was always part of my family. I grew up um, in a very, very strict Italian, like old school household where basically as a female, um, I wasn't allowed to speak unless I was spoken to, um, education, um, I wasn't allowed to have any ambitions for education or anything like that. And basically um, from a young age, I was um, uh, told that I was going to be in an arranged marriage uh, Mm. in my teens and and so forth. And so um, when I was exposed to alcohol, which was usually in family functions and I'm, you know, really big family functions where, you know, it was like a wedding or something like that, I would see everybody being happy and, people were generally nice to me and I was treated like an equal for a second. So I was like, oh, alcohol makes people happy. And, you know, when they drink, they're actually a lot nicer to me and people speak to me and, and it doesn't really matter that I, you know, am a female or whatever. And it's, it's kind of like all their inhibitions and, you know, cultural conditioning went out the window when they drank. So I, from a young age, I was like, oh, okay, yep, that's, that's, that's what makes people nice. So in my family, alcohol made people nice. And, you know, also, you know, they came from villages in Italy where they were making their own 
um, spirits and wine and things like that. So, I mean, it was always around, but when they, it was that pivotal time when they consumed alcohol that they were just so happy and so nice. Mm. So it was easy to kind of see that, you know, maybe that was the answer to my problems from a young age. So did you, was it violent in your family? Yeah. Um, so in my family, um, the the polar, the paradox of that also was, you know, when I, when I, when my dad would come home and he would drink in the immediate family, things started to get really bad. Um, and they were quite violent when he would drink. Um, they probably were going to be like that anyway, but the, uh, the alcohol basically exacerbated that. And, um, yeah, I, I come from quite horrific, um, family violence and, um, I feel like that, had something to do with the reason that I drank because when I reached about 13 or 14, that's when I basically reached for the bottle and drinking became the answer to my, to my problems. It was like this magic potion where I could, I could connect with other people and connect with other people who also had the same or similar problems at home that I did. And we would just all hang together and, and everything was fine for however long we were not sober for. Right. So being that young, it must have been hard to come across alcohol. How did you do that? Well, generally it would be one of two things. We would either pool our money for alcohol and it would generally be like something really cheap um, that we would all share um, or it would be raiding someone's parents' cupboard or something to that effect. So um, this, as I said, this started about maybe 13, 13 years of age. So what was it like at school then if you were drinking a bit? Um, well, basically that escalated because what ended up happening, um, I ended up drinking and using at school. Um, it became such an issue that people would supply me um, the, the alcohol and the drugs at school. Um, they, it wouldn't matter what they had. It was just if they had something that they would bring it in and, and they would share it and I would go to class at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning, off my face. Wow. <laughs> so what sort of drugs at that age? Look, do you know what? I actually don't know. Yeah. Um, I know I know. consciously I was. Um, it was alcohol and marijuana mostly, but if somebody had something else and they're like, I've got, you know, this to snort, I, I'd just take it. It wouldn't really matter what it was. It would just, as, as long as it meant that I didn't have to be thinking or myself for a short amount of time, I would take it. It didn't matter. Right. Okay. So, Dave, um, you're, you've been drinking since you're 14 mm-hmm. and you come to the end of school, So what, or the end of high school. So what happens? So, <laughs> so what happened was I, I was, uh, because I was a June baby, um, I don't know how it works these days, so I was 16 in year 12, um, quite young. Um, and my able to get alcohol was that I always had older friends. Right. You know, we, yeah. we actually pushed a billy cart uh, through a bottle <laughs> shop one time because he got his pea plates, so we put the pea plates on the billy cart and pushed it. Anyway. So I've turned up to high school at 16. So I've had a really good holiday, uh, Christmas holiday. Um, turned up to school, high school, uh, first class English, 16-year-old. It's English. It's an English lesson. And the teacher says, all right, we'll do a quick summary of the books that you read during the Christmas break. And uh, my hand went up and I said, what books? Uh, because I 
realised I'd spent the money that my parents gave me to buy the books on alcohol. Right. So I haven't read these books. I just looked at her and I said, I don't belong here. And uh, I went out and sat in the Oval and uh, went and bought an ounce of marijuana and sat in the Oval uh, with the other people that had dropped out of school. And um, and that was the beginning of, of a different life. That, that was heavy use from then on, heavy drinking and um, heavy marijuana use, which ended up in um, quite heavy amphetamine use as well. Right. So, uh, yeah, from 16 I started working. My first job lasted nine months. That was the longest job I was to have until I was 42. Nine months was the longest I would work. Wow. And uh, I was smoking dope every day at 16, my first full-time job, uh, drinking. Uh, it was a it was a typical blue collar. We would race down to the pub at lunchtime and put as many pots away as you could. And in that half an hour, that was your, your lunch break. You didn't eat. You drank as many pots as you could and raced back to work. And so I was just uh, enthralled in that life, and it just didn't stop. It was just a roller coaster. Well, not not a roller coaster. It was a, a carousel. It just went round and round. And and from then, I just picked up things. You know, picked up uh, wives. Um, you know, I met a girl at twenty one. She made a decision to move in with me. We're still together now, thirty years later. We've been through quite a lot. Um, so that didn't change anything. She just joined my carousel. I pick up new friends. I'd lose them. I'd pick up new friends. I'd lose them, and it just and I got older and older and older, and, and nothing changed. No, just nothing changed. It was just the same same stuff every day, every week. Get a job, lose a job. Get a job, lose a job. Get some money, blow the money. Come up with these incredible ideas how to become rich. Nothing would come to fruition. Make friends, lose friends. And um, my body got older and my mind didn't. I never never sort of went, hey, I need to pull up and do something about this. Right. And, and in between that, at 18, I'd had a suicide attempt and ended up in a hospital that's not around anymore called La Rundle. So I was 18 years old with um, severe mental patients in La Rundle and, and that didn't put the brakes on it either. What it actually did was give me an excuse to drink because they diagnosed me with, an Ill, with a mental illness and um, basically, in those days, they just wrote you off. They gave you a Centrelink check and said, "Good luck with your life." And uh, it sort of gave me the the permission to just keep drinking and using because I was a broken individual that was never going to have a life. So, were you on prescription drugs too, I assume? Or uh, I was on all sorts of haloperidol and malarol and everything that um, just bound my body for three years. I was crippled in a chair from from psychiatric drugs, but I was able to continue drinking every day. Right. Okay. So, yeah. And that was when I found amphetamines because that solved that problem, right. got me out of the chair and onto the dance floor. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so back, back to you then, Kat. Um, so you're sort of 13, 14 years old. Yep. Things are not going brilliantly at home. No. Things are not going brilliantly at school. What no. happens? So about 13 or 14, um, I got asked to leave the family home uh, quite abruptly due to defending myself um, against the situation, um, domestic violence situation. And so for a long time, so from 13 to 27, when I got into recovery, I bounced around from place to place, job to job, relationship to relationship, home to home. I think my record um, for moving was 16 times in one year. Um, I couldn't stay in one place, in one situation for a long period of time um, due to the destructive nature of what I was doing. Um, and so um, 
that's what life was like. I got through school. Um, I tried to do my best to, you know, do the work thing, do the relationship thing, um, you know, the normal sort of socially acceptable things that people do and none of those things worked for me. Every time I tried to do something that was respectable or um, – respectable or or and the only word that I can think of is normal um it just didn't work for me and I thought oh I must be special like there must be something about me that that is um different so again you know that that feeling of aloneness and that feeling of disconnect was always emphasized because the fallout of the situations that I would get myself into when I was drinking and using it was just not it was just not acknowledged it was all about how my life just wouldn't work and it was everybody else's fault and I was feeling quite victimized but there was still no knowledge at that time of the damage that was being created by my own self-destruction. So who were you living with if you weren't living at home? So between the ages of so in my teen years when I really should have been at home um, there was no adult supervision because my parents had split up and my mum was not home often um if at all. So it would either be someone like my grandparents, my friends, um, their friends and all their partners or something like that, wherever it was that I happened to crash out. Or, um, I also, um, happened to be a scholarship student at, um, a really, (laughs) I don't know how this happened, but I was a scholarship student at a very prestigious school in Sydney. And, um, the teachers knew that I was having some issues at home and they allowed me to stay at the boarding house. So it was between the boarding house and, and, and friends and friends of friends and whoever else was, you know, it just didn't matter. I was just, I was, I was really okay with being quite unsettled that there's no one specific answer for that. No. Yeah. So what was your attitude to authority? I hated authority. It's like you could not tell me what to do. And it wasn't even that I felt that I was equal to it. I just hated I just hated anybody who told me that they thought that they knew it was best for me. And I think what the underlying thing for me was that, that really deep feeling of disconnection of just like, you don't know my life. You don't know where I've been. How dare you tell me what to do? How dare you, you know, assume that you know what's what's best for me when you have no consideration or no context of where I've come from. And so again, you know, that, that real feeling of disconnect and victimization, just Mm. feeling like I just didn't belong in the world. And I I thought this is, this really sucks. And I, I guess the one thing that really stuck out for me is that idea of not liking authority also bled into, you know, other situations that I got into myself um, got myself into when I was drinking. So things like with the police or with doctors and things like that. There's just so much trouble with not liking people who were supposed to be able to help me. Yeah. <laughs> Push everybody away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a living free show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. We have 28 podcasts of the show available on 3cr.org.au forward slash living free. And also on iTunes. Uh, Podcasts of other 3CR shows are available on 3cr.org.au forward slash podcasts. If you have a question or a comment about the show, you can call the station on 9419 8377 or send us an email at 3 gmail.com. I'm talking to Dave and Kat about recovery from alcoholism. Um, So, Dave, you talked about suffering mental illness 
about 18 years old and then spending a few years drinking and... No, I said I was diagnosed with oh, mental diagnosed. illness. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. I can say today I don't suffer from schizophrenia or bipolar. I take medication for depression um, and I encourage anyone in recovery that has a secondary disease to seek medical help. Um, we at AA are not doctors. Yeah. So, But, yeah, I was a lucky one that it was um, what they call alcohol and drug um, psychosis. Okay. So yeah. once the alcohol and drug stopped, the psychosis went away. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how did your life continue once, you know, once you got into that pattern? How long did you continue drinking before you found any sort of so need I to stop? Had a psych- uh, so, so I had a... A psychiatric episode, drug or whatever, at 18 ended up uh, trying to commit. This is how special I thought I was. Uh, the night I decided to uh, kill myself, my parents weren't home and I spent three hours on the roof of the house playing Jesus Christ Superstar. So <laughs> that gives you some sort of idea how special yep. I thought I was. Um, that's quite a unique thing too, that they were going away for a week and uh, they decided to cut the thing short and came home the next day and found me on the floor, otherwise I wouldn't be talking today. Right. So there's a little, is that odd or is that God moment, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but uh, I went on to drink for another 24 years. Wow. Didn't stop. Yeah. And one of the things when I came in AA that was very special to me was I started getting involved in districts and that very, very quickly because I was never told about AA. There was nobody that came to the school. There was no one that came to the scouts. Uh, it wasn't on television. It, you know, AA was invisible. And uh, when I got involved in AA, that became a really big deal for me to want to find out how we get, you know, the, the message of AA out into the public. Yeah. Yeah, the first time I became aware of AA was in, there used to be a program called Number 96, mm-hmm. and they had a, an alcoholic who went to AA in Number 96, and that's mm-hmm. how I found out about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I guess, you know, uh, popular culture is a good way of spreading the message. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, um, yeah, drink for another 24 years, and all I did was pick up people and drop people. Nothing changed. It was just the same life. It was just the same mentality. I was 16 in my mind. Nothing changed. Um, all that ever happened was you are, you're obviously not cool, to keep, cool enough to keep up with me, you know. Mm. Um, but it, unfortunately what happens is you get older. Your kidneys stop working. Your pancreas <laughs> stops working. Your lungs stop working. And um, you, get, you start getting sicker and sicker. And, um, yeah, so what happened was in the cycle of addiction – Jails started turning up more often. Um, hospitals started turning up more often. Uh, longer periods of sickness after sprees, you know, because the body just doesn't handle it anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, Kat and I have talked about violence in in um, alcoholism. Mm. Um, I didn't know if I was going to cry, fight, love you. I didn't mm. know if I was going to be your best friend or your worst enemy, and that could change on on the you know on the turn of a die. Um. But, of course, that sort of emotional upheaval and behaviour attracts police. <laughs> um, so jail cells became more more prevalent and um, blackouts and uh, I was notorious. I didn't, I didn't drive till I was 40. So I was, it was notorious for uh, um, being peeled off nature strips at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning by ambulances. Right. So I would wake up with Valium in one arm and Celine in another arm uh, knowing that I'm in trouble again because my dad's going to find out and he's going to take my bank account off me and just like I was a child and I was 40. Yeah, right. 
So, yeah, I guess that brings another um, issue in, and that is enabling families and mm. friends enabling you to drink. So how much do you think that enabled you by having people pick up after you? Exactly. I, I was talking to you before and I said um, I would come home covered in vomit, covered in blood, bruises, slashes, broken bones. Uh, police would deliver me home. But I would wake up in the morning in clean sheets. The house was immaculate uh, with a sweetheart. Are you all right? Sweetheart, wake up uh, with some Panadol, a coffee and a breakfast tray. Mm. Uh, so there was never any um, consequences. consequences. Yeah. And we talk about in AA about needing a higher power. Um, my dad was my higher power for a while. Uh, he controlled all the bank accounts. He paid all the bills. Um, so my life didn't become unmanageable because someone was managing it for me. Yep. And at home, when all these consequences, my wife was managing it for me. And it wasn't until at the very end when even she'd had enough and I woke up and she'd left and there was a note saying, this is it, it's the last straw, I'm gone. And that was the day that I rang AA. <laughs> <laughs> so as soon as I didn't have a manager, that was it. I needed help. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, so how about you, Kat? When did, when did your life start to turn to the point that you thought you needed to do something about it? I think there were very many times that even with the people that I... I drank and used with um, or the relationships that I was having at the time, people actually told me that, you know, Kat, do you think maybe you have a drinking problem? And I would get so annoyed that they would say that. They, they would even suggest that to me, like, how dare you? You know, look at look at you, look how much you drink. And, and so for a long time, I, I guess maybe I sort of toyed with the idea because, as I mentioned before, I was moving around a lot and it was always someone else's problem that I was drinking so it's like oh well maybe I shouldn't go to this bar anymore because they drink too much there and maybe I shouldn't hang out with these people because they they drink too much and so it was always something on the outside that was that I felt that was influencing my behavior and I could never really fully take responsibility and even when I did try to go okay well maybe maybe I'll just try not drinking and and see how that kind of goes for me and 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 again sort of toying with the idea and maybe you know sitting in denial for quite some time I guess um it wasn't until it wasn't until the last last time I drank where I nearly died that I thought oh my god this is real this this is so real there's no one there's no one here I can reach out to because everybody that I knew in my life was doing the same thing that I was and um, there was just there was just no one there. Like I didn't have anyone enabling me but I also didn't have anyone else there to support me and, and it just got real all in a, in a split second. So I think it was just it just the turning point was so quick for me. It was so quick and it was so deadly and it was it was literally within I don't know a period of 60 seconds that I was like I am so I'm cooked, I'm toasted and and there was no denial, there was no there was no um not a shadow of a doubt that I had a real problem and that I was alcoholic and I think it was it just flooded in it was I can't even begin to describe like how overwhelming that was for it to happen that quickly and and needing an urgent dire response for for my situation okay um so one thing I was going to say was um mm. how did you when you drank yeah 
Did you have a personality change? Absolutely. Um, as Dave was saying about, you know, you didn't know whether he was going to laugh or cry. Um, it would start off where I was a really happy drunk and everybody, you know, and I explained that feeling of being connected and that feeling of, you know, having a really good time and so forth. And then, you know, they, they, they explain that in recovery, um, alcoholic is a progressive illness or a progressive disease, if you want to call it that. And for me, I, I experienced it that way because I would, I would start to really change. Um, and it would, it would just take one second, one look, one, comment one 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 thing that I just didn't like about you it could even just be I didn't like what you were wearing or I didn't like you like just just something that I could use and it would be one second and I'd experience fits of rage and violence and and you know problems with the police and and waking up with head injuries or, or you know really bad situations in the hospital and and you know the the short answer would be yes I did experience personality change like I I wouldn't act like that or do those things being sober. I, I, I don't think that I'm that person that, you know, wants to go out and, you know, punch someone in the face because I don't like them. Like it just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, alcohol was the problem that it was a, a trigger to, to make me behave in ways that were really extreme. Yeah. So did you drink to blackout? I didn't necessarily drink to blackout. I, wanted, I, I really wanted to just drink to have fun originally like if I was thinking about you know the the 13 or 14 year old that picked up but it became a drink it became drinking to blackout it became drinking just to to not be here because I just I just didn't want to be here right <laughs> uh, um so um Dave with you you before you came to AA mm-hmm. you were drinking pretty seriously yeah, I wasn't drinking every day. Yeah. Um, I was an everyday drinker when I was 18. I was an everyday drinker when I was 26. It kind of ebbed and flowed. It mm. depended on circumstance. So at the end of my drinking, I had tried to stop drinking hundreds, if not thousands of times. Mm. So when in AA I was told that it's a disease, disease of stopping drinking and never stopping completely, yeah. I got that. Yep. And when I read the big book of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and I read Bill's story about how he would stop and even the wife and family thought, this time it's for sure, yep. and within a week he's walked in, he's blind drunk. T- totally my story. So I would have days, weeks, maybe months off the booze. Life would get better. I'd get a job. I'd get some money. Everyone would start trusting me again. I'd get some friends, and then I'd pick up a drink and just the house of cards would fall down again. So that's how it was for about the last five years of my drinking. Right. Continuously start trying to stop. Right. Uh, so, Kat, what about you? Did you try and stop? Yeah, many times. Um, I think most of the time, because I was in denial, it was more because it was like a screw you, I can, I can totally stop because everybody told me that I had a drinking problem. So I thought, well, if I have a drinking problem, then I wouldn't be able to stop. So there would be, there would be times where I would try to manage when or how I was drinking or, or even just not for a period of time, just, just to prove something more than I actually wanted to stop. And you yeah. could do that? Pardon? You could do that? Self-will could do that? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was more the intention than anything else. It's like, you know, I had the intent to want to do that, but whether or not that actually happened was obviously not the case. Right. It was only of a pain that made me stop. Yeah. Humility, embarrassment, physical pain. That was mm. why I stopped. 
and those 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 uh, ideas were gone within a day, a week, yep. Yep. a month. And funny, I would pick up. I'm a fisherman, and it'd be the there's a there's a description in the book. It would be the end of a perfect day. Yeah. So the sun would be going down. I'm tired. I'm a little bit sunburnt, and I'd go and buy half a dozen cans to finish off the perfect day. The next thing, it'd be three o'clock in the morning at the Burvale Hotel. Yeah. I'd have fish guts hanging off me, and I'm trying to pick up 21 year olds. You know. <laughs> The perfect nightmare. And, that, and it'd be another fight and another hospital visit. Right. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. You're listening to Living Free on 3CR Community Radio, um, on digital radio, and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Um, I'm talking to Dave and Kat about recovery from the disease of alcoholism. Um, and we're sort of talking about going to, going to AA and what it's like to be fairly new in AA. So how was it for you, Dave? What what was your feeling coming into AA about the organisation? Well, I had no expectations because, as I said, I'd never seen anything about AA. Uh, so when I got there, I went to far outer eastern suburbs and um, it was a lot of guys in their 60s and their 70s and there was lots of talking about, you know, um, their drinking stories and what had happened. But the biggest thing that I got from it was the love that came from the place. Um, they were interested in me. No one was ever interested in me. Um, they said those amazing words, keep coming back. No one had said yeah. keep coming back, keep coming back for a long, long time. <laughs> mm. And um, it was actually funny. I'm just thinking about now. My first meeting, I went out and my dad went, so you fixed? <laughs> one meeting. So you yeah. fi- have, you, have you got the pill? Um, but anyway, so, um, yeah, lots of coffees, lots of chats, lots of long talks, um, but it, it, it wasn't what I was looking for. Um, I felt, again, a bit stuck. Um, I, underst- I wasn't drinking and I didn't feel like drinking, but I didn't see a solution. There, they didn't, yeah, I don't know, yeah, just kind of being stuck again. Um, but, however, I was introduced to recovery uh, by a young fellow, and uh, he took me to meetings that were based on big book studies, step meetings, sponsorship, twelve step, twelve steps of recovery, and uh, my journey started from there. Um, you know, the, uh, the a lot of people used to say it's the first drink that gets you drunk, and I couldn't agree with that because I thought it was the sixth or the eighth, yeah. and it just wouldn't work in my brain, but. Someone in recovery meetings said to me, well, Dave, put it this way, if you don't put alcohol in your body, you can't get drunk. And I went, wow. Mm. And that blew me away. I, like, I think I sat there for half an hour just going, I found the secret of the universe. Because yep. <laughs> that had never – it had always been about trying to control how much I'd drink so mm. that I didn't get drunk. The idea of not drinking at all never part, never part was never even a thought. Mm. So with that thought of it, um, it, it opened up that maybe these people know what they're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so what about you, Kat? How was, how was AA to you coming in? So coming in, I think my early experiences were I had no idea what was going on, but I was desperate and I was willing to do anything to get sober because I, w- I was scared and I didn't want to die. And I was looking around at all these people um, and because I was just so unwell – I, I hated everyone to begin with. I was just like, I hate you. I hate this program. I hate the fact that I'm an alcoholic and, and now I have to do this for the rest of my life. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But 
what started to really change for me was the message that there was hope for me. I was told that when I got into the rooms that um, you don't get your old life polished up and handed back to you, that you actually get a brand new one um, and it could be, you know, a life beyond your wildest dreams. And I didn't have any dreams, so I was like, okay, well, that sounds good to me. (laughs) That sounds pretty good to me. And then over a period of time, and this happened really slowly for me, um, people started to show up who I actually legitimately connected with, who loved me, who... You know, Dave was saying, you know, keep coming back and, and just, you know, people who were just wanted to sit there and listen to me. And there were people who went out of their way to help house me and feed me and give me all these things that I didn't really have access to in sobriety. So the overwhelming um, amount of, of love that I've received in the rooms and kindness is insurmountable. I think if I hadn't if I had an experience that, that, that I probably wouldn't have stayed sober. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have come back. Yeah. Did you feel like drinking? Um, I think there were very many times where I did in the beginning. Um, and when things got hard, I thought about it and it was only ever really a thought. Um, and here's another one of those cliches that people told me about in the rooms. It's, um, I think it's my worst day sober is better than my best day drunk. Um, which is true. And I, as I said, there were, there were thoughts where I really wanted to just, just for not for, not even for being drunk, but just because I just wanted to numb out and it's, you know, become such a coping mechanism for such a long time that it just became something that I thought of automatically, but no, would I, would I want to do it? No, it just, it's not worth it. Yeah. Did you want to recover? I think there was part of me that wanted to recover and part of me that wanted to die. I think that the, there was, if you were thinking about it in terms of like a scale where it was instead of 50-50, it was 49-51. And that 51% was made up of, I just want to see what happens in recovery. Maybe, just maybe, there's a, it was living in the realm of possibility. Maybe, just maybe, there is truth to what they're saying. Because if all these people could get well and they could be happy and their lives could change in these dramatic ways, then maybe that would happen for me too. Did you resent them? I did resent them because I, I, I just I couldn't see how where I was at then and, you know, the potentiality of whatever it was that could exist beyond alcoholism and the life that I had. I, 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 I resented them because I was just like, this can't be real. You know, like, yeah. this can't, you can't be that happy. Like you can't be that, that well-adjusted. Like I, I, just, I just hate you. <laughs> I just hate you for having this thing that I don't even know exists. If I could have it, if I was worthy of having it. Yep. Yep. Um, so, Dave, what about what about the new style of AA that <clears throat> you became aware of? How did that help you? Well, what I found was that there was a, a big push of people that were pushing recovery and that recovery was action. Right. So it wasn't turning up and being part of. Uh, although that's a huge part. So meetings, the fellowship, unity, huge part. But I was I was just encouraged and encouraged and encouraged to to get into service, to get in to, to start my my journey on the twelve steps. And the easiest way was that um, um, my sponsor today, uh, you know, he says it quite well. He says at step two, it tells me that you know I have a, a form of mental illness, and that is that my brain's always saying it's a really good idea to pick up a drink 
And that still happens today, 11 years sober. Mm-hmm. You know, I see someone on Chapel Street, mm-hmm. they have a beer, I go, wow, I remember being able to have a beer. I must be able to have a beer. You know, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. But it's replaced with the same thought straight away. And with the, t- with the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, it tells me that at the end of the 10th step, I'm returned to sanity, you know, talking about the, the insanity of drinking. And I was just told that, you know, that the people, well, what was, if I looked around, the people that were happy and moving on in life and just looking well uh, were doing certain actions. And so I thought I might as well take those actions. And in the beginning I did it out of, if this doesn't work, I have to make sure I've done everything 100% so that when it doesn't work it's not my fault. Yep. Because I had a I had a um, a wardrobe full of cricket bats, footballs, badminton, roller skates, which I'd tried ten percent, couldn't do it perfectly straight away, and went, I'm not doing it anymore. So I knew this time I had to do this a hundred percent, so that if it didn't work, I couldn't like in a year go, but you didn't really try. Yeah, yep. you know, I had to I had to do it, and that's and that's how I started out. And three years later, I was sober and had you know I was a member of a group and doing all sorts of crazy things. And I went, wow, where did that three years go? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Uh, so what about you, Kat? How did, um, how did the, I guess, the fellowship, you know, other people and your – did you get the desire to help others? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess it was not that I never had the desire to help other people when I was drinking, but there was a very big difference in the way that I helped people, which was I helped them because there wasn't – I helped them without expectation, so without manipulation, without thinking, oh, if I help this person, then they'll give me something in return or I expect something in return. So when I actually did reach out to be part of the fellowship and to actually be part of and to help, and it was actually it was actually because I genuinely wanted to be kind and because I genuinely felt that I had something to offer and that person really needed my help rather than I thought that I could gain something from it. So that was a really big change in the way that I did, the way that I did life in terms of service. Yeah. Could I cut in on that yeah. just a sec too? Yeah, I, was, I loved helping people. I'm a compassionate person. Um, and what AA did for me was say, all right, let's focus your attention on alcoholics. Mm. So I'm not trying to help the world anymore. Yeah. So I'm not spending all that. Instead of spending 1% on many different ways of helping, I'm spending 100%. Mm. And on it's, it's so... Yeah. It's so you're not as tired. No. (laughs) So I was going to say some people listening don't understand service. So what's service in an AA speak? Um, Well, basically AA is a triangle, an upside-down triangle. So what that means is the groups are in charge of AA and uh, all that can happen is the more lower, higher or lower, the more, uh, the bigger the job you have, the more people you have ringing you, telling you you're doing the wrong job. Right. So you end up with lots and lots of bosses. So the groups are in charge and at the bottom of the triangle, one person might be typing the minutes. Yeah. Um, but outside that triangle, we don't get any help from anyone. We get no money, we get no management, we get nothing. We have to run the entire organisation of, of AA. Um, mm. Anyone who calls themselves an alcoholic, uh, and lives within that triangle, nobody's doing it for us. Yeah. So we have to look after Alcoholics Anonymous. So I say quite often, you know, it's really nice that God's in the rooms, but I've never seen him make the coffee. Yeah. So <laughs> someone needs to open up, someone needs to put the chairs out, someone needs to make coffee, someone needs... And then as you go further and further into it, 
Someone has to write the write the pamphlets. Someone has to, and none of this, not even the big books and the pamphlets and and all our literature and everything, all that comes from within the triangle. There's yeah. no one hired. Maybe one or two are hired outside the triangle. Yeah. Um, so we have to do it ourselves, and without doing service, it, we don't go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kat, what's your experience in service? Um, my experience in service has mostly just been. Um, being part of a group, um, like a regular group that I go to, um, which would be called a home group. Um, so just a regular group that, you know, you would be part of and, and, you know, obtaining some sort of responsibility. So whether or not that is, you know, buying, um, the milk or coffee or, you know, whatever it is, or helping put out the chairs or or things like that. Um, so that's been part of my experience to start with in the rooms is, is getting a small responsibility and helping out within a group situation over time it's sort of extended more to um helping the still suffering alcoholic um in some really extreme ways so you know picking up a call and saying you know where someone's saying you know i'm going to die if i continue to to um to drink and i don't i don't know what to do and and just being there for someone and offering a sense of support and kindness that was offered to me so it really does for me and my recovery, it's changed a lot. So there's like a spectrum of, of where that could where that could go in terms of service or responsibility. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Dave, what what would you say to somebody who came into who who felt they probably needed to do something about their drinking, and they are about your age when you came in, about forty. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to those people? Look, there's a, a really big thing in AA where a lot of people come in and they say, I was young and I came in and there's all these old people and I hadn't lost my car and I hadn't, I hadn't lost my licence, I hadn't crashed cars. You know, I don't understand these people. Obviously, I'm not an alcoholic. Mm. Okay, for guys coming in at my age, 42, AA is full of young people and they're really, really annoying, okay? <laughs> they're so happy. They're so full of life. Um, to be honest, they, they often get back on on the the flow of life quite quickly because they probably haven't lost as much as someone that's coming in at 42. Now, if you're coming in at that age, I never had anything but so many guys I see come in, they run companies, they're, they're blue-collar tradies or whatever. That has nothing to do with unmanageability. Unmanageability is that you're ringing AA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you didn't at, when, at year six when they said, write down what you want to be when you're grown up, you didn't say, I want to go to AA. So at 42, you're going to be really, really resentful. You're going to really not want to be coming to AA. You're not going to understand why your life fell apart. Just give it a go. Um, just let go. And, um, and and my biggest thing for guys at 42 is probably in their 40s and 50s, do lots of different meetings so that you find your home. And, in fact, I, I say that to all people coming in. Don't do the same meeting seven times and say AA doesn't work because that's not AA, that's one meeting. Yeah. So do lots and lots of different meetings and find your own home. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about you, Kat? Somebody in your from your um, life? I would just say that if you if you come to AA, there is, there is a method to the madness and there's a reason why there are steps. There are a reason why there are 
there are things that are ruled out is because there's a formula. It's like in science, if you if you have certain things that are put together, it's like a, an equation A plus B equals C. And it's the same thing with recovery. There is There is a formula for recovery. And if you come and you're open-minded and you're willing to do that formula, you will get certain results. And that's all I would really say. And that end, it does get better. I'm, I'm probably living proof that, you know, of a person who came in who didn't get this wonderful, shining recovery. I didn't feel better straight away and everything around me fell apart. But, I'm, you know, if I was determined and if, you, if you're willing and if you just do what the formula says – then there is there are, there are outcomes there are guaranteed outcomes that you will stay sober and things will get better in whatever way shape or form that that looks like so i would say just come you know you're always welcome um it is okay if you're angry it's okay if you're sad it's okay just 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 come and 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 give it a shot and just see how it works out yep and be open minded okay yeah. thanks Okay, uh, that's about all we've got time for today. Um, so I'd like to thank uh, Dave and Kat for coming into the 3CR studio this afternoon and sharing their Alcoholic Anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank Thanks, you. Bill. Thanks so much, Bill. Um, if you'd like to find out more about AA and how they could help you, then you can phone them on 1300 222 222 or go online at aa.org.au. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovering from compulsive overeating and be joined by some members of Overeaters Anonymous. Stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Thanks for listening to the Living Free program today. (laughs) 